Welcome to Happy Homes and Gardens. I'm your host. My name is Daphne Royce. I'm a real estate broker, architecture, and interior designer. Outdoor living is best in California from April to November, when the sun shines every day. Whether it is a barbecue with the friends and families, gardening, getting fresh air, or play with the pets. Our street worked in the family garden in Germany with her parents since she was young. She understands the garden and can magically transform your yards into favorite place at home. Our street is the founder and owner of Our Street Geyser Garden Design in the Silicon Valley of the San Francisco Bay Area. She will share her creative designs of outdoor spaces. Hello, Astrid. Hi, Daphne. Thank you for having me today. Um, yeah, as Daphne already said, I'm I'm in the middle of Silicon Valley um, on the San Francisco Bay Area's outer side, not the east. Um, I'm in Mountain View. Um, I provide residential landscape design to people who want to live outdoors. And um, Daphne already touched on this one because. It is so fabulous here. I mean, when I moved here from Germany, and that is now 23 years ago, I was like, oh, my God, you can live most of the year outside. And it was just, it was fabulous. Didn't work at that time as a landscape designer, which Daphne has worked before and, um, you know, got into it, into the gardening here immediately because there is a 10-month growth period here. and, And I loved it. Tell us about you and how did you get into garden design fashion? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm a computer scientist, like most people who live here, right? And then when I moved here, I realized that you know the gardens were so fabulous. So I started gardening very intensively, and I got asked by a lot of my colleagues, friends, neighbors, family, uh, you know, how do you do this and how do you do that, and um, I wasn't actually a, a engineer at this point anymore. For many, many years, I did product management, meaning I would get requirements from people and then I would help the engineers to understand what they would build so that they would fulfill the requirements. And so it is the same actually for garden design. So it was a very natural transition for me. I'm getting requirements from my residential customers. I turn them into something that a contractor can read. And the outcome is that they're building actually what the client would wish to have. As Daphne can probably tell you from her experience um, in, in architecture, it is a beautiful process when you go with your clients through this, through this finding out what they really want. Because a lot of things they hadn't seen before when they start working with me. And so they have an entire, you know, couple months of finding new stuff that they have never thought about. And, you know, adding an outdoor kitchen where nothing ever was meant to be, um, having an outdoor gym, having, you know, all of a sudden, it, they have the wildest ideas suddenly because they start looking at it and, and we start exploring and it's, it's a very beautiful process. And then, um, I take it and, that is where my education comes in. I take it and turn it into 
a plan that a contractor then can understand. And then the contractor will actually build what they want, which is, you know, that's the most fabulous thing about it. Because I've seen um, sometimes friends end up with this idea of, of they can remodel a house or something like that themselves, where they go and just hire a contractor. And then they're quite overwhelmed by that process because they have nobody in between that does the translation. Now, the translation was what I did for, for many years before. Um, in this case, it hasn't changed that much. I still love working with people. I like, I like people. I enjoy working with people. So I enjoy working with my clients. And I still am very good in translating this into a technical document that other people, the engineers or contractors, can understand. I have to go back to school because two degrees in computer science will not help you with, with drawing out plans. So I went back to school here in the U.S. and um, learned everything I needed to learn about landscape construction and about how to draw a plan and plant knowledge because you won't believe it, but there are different plants here than where I come from. Um, I'm having more of an East Coast plant palette that I grew up with. And so, you know, I had to learn everything about what we can do here. And, you know, lots of experimenting naturally in my own garden. That's about the history. I'm doing this now since 2005 and I love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Would you like to share some samples to yeah, our audience? Yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. So what I usually come into is a situation like this juniper and, you know, anything that that's wife without a lot of care, often something that you want to rescue, maybe not the juniper, but, you know, in in other cases, yes. Um, the entire landscape looks a little bit like the 60s because that's when that was built. Beautiful, beautiful planter that we rescued, but, you know, not in the way it is currently. Um, everything looks a little used. Um, here is a three to four foot truck where you can really, you know, do damage to yourself that had no railing. Um, everything looks a little bit, retaining walls are coming down. It feels like, like nothing was looked after for a while. Um, you know, some plants do really well and, and multiply and others have just died. Um, there's a real squirrel problem because this is a non-fenced area, squirrel, rabbits, deer, everybody likes to eat vegetables. Even an outdoor kitchen was there. However, you know, that had a rat problem because it was built in a manner that, you know, the rodents got in. Fire pit was, you know, very tall, very, it, it looked a bit uncomfortable. Everything looked a little uncomfortable. Um, beautiful deck, just stunning deck, but with a very scary feature. You would look down into the staircase that nobody used, and it is like 20 feet above the ground. It is not comfortable to look down this way. So also here, no risers. All the steps have no risers. You could look right down. So very scary deck. Yeah, it needed love. It just needed love and it needed forethought. And this is how it looks after. So it, it's like, you know, it has a railing. It has a nice, you know, clean hardscape so you can get into the house without stumbling. It got color. We used these old planters that were left over from the 60s and popped them up a little bit. And, you know, we planted everything, everything that we planted, admittedly. Here you see the railing that keeps you from falling down, which is lovely. 
I'm just going through here. You see that the entire front yard, the juniper got out and we put in drought tolerant planting, lots and lots of large succulents that we actually harvested out of a garden in Berkeley where we got those huge succulents um, for a very good price from the owner that was going into construction. And, you know, he didn't want to keep them and I just got them for, for the clients. We now have an entrance into the backyard. It is, you know, if you're a deer, you can still walk around it because that is literally only fencing we added, but it makes an impression. It makes it feel more welcoming. These retaining walls stayed, but much to your surprise now, they're hidden a little bit with two large and very nice vegetable areas and with a deck and with another deck. So they're kind of hidden now behind the hot tub, which is lovely. They're still there, nothing got touched, but they're also not visible anymore. We have now a built-in hot tub. We have, that's all our screening to the neighbor. We don't need more. The rest is all open. It's a wonderfully open, you know, very natural area. One little water feature here, that's actually not that little. It's, it's a four foot bowl. Um, very beautiful, very simple, standalone, nothing special, very water conserving. So, you know, it, it recycles the water and there's very little, um, evaporation. You see these big succulents that we got from, from that, uh, mature garden. It just makes an immediate impact. That is a couple, it's three months after, after planting and plants have already developed fabulously. I was very pleased with how quickly they took. That deck that was a little bit scary, not so scary anymore. We took the entire entrance into the downstairs away, closed this up because we didn't need to go down there. And we made a beautiful dining area out of it. So we really made sure that the clients could actually use all of their garden. We just opened it up and made it useful. Same thing when you go around the corner here, we added a bench that hit that, you know, where you could peek down the 20 feet down and we closed all the risers up so that you wouldn't look underneath the stairs and go like, oh, this is scary. It looks so much more comfortable to be on this deck now. And when you come back from the deck, you see how much entertainment area there was. Um, the clients threw a party last year after this got done. It got done right before the force. They threw a party with 70 people and they said they had ample space for the people to walk around and mingle and have a fabulous time. These umbrellas have heaters. You can tilt. Um, they're just, you know, they look like a piece of furniture. Big fire pit, comfortable seating. We added even more seating later on, but that was the beginning. And a kitchen that is rodent-proof and, you know, up to the coat. And it looks nice. It is, you know, it is a, it's easy to keep clean. I'm German. I like keeping clean. So, you know, easy to keep clean. It's very nice. It has, instead of a barbecue, it has something like a Korean barbecue on there. Um, has a big rock burner. It's just fun. And they use it. My clients use it. And I'm just going through the rest here showing, you know, a couple of details because it's fun to see. And lighting. There was a lot of lighting that went in here. And so they have a night garden, which personally I find very, very 
exciting. If you go out into your garden by night and you still see what's going on, one of the nicest things. And that gives you kind of a, a feeling of what, you know, how it transforms what I do for my client. Could you touch subjects about the Korean barbecue versus to the American barbecue? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So that was um, because uh, one of them wasn't eating meat and the other one wasn't a big meat eater. But they thought it was kind of cool to have some, it's like a griddle practically, right? It's like, it's like a flat surface. And you can, I've used that for, for purely vegetarian couples as well, that would then put roti. They were Indian vegetarian couples and they would put roti and vegetables on there to grill that. And then this couple here does, you know, the occasional fish and, um, you know, even, even the occasional meat because that actually works for everything. It's, um, it's more of a party. Not, not really, but I mean, it's like, it's very, Fabulous for a party. Let me put it like this. They're, they're using it with just the two of them, but for a party, it's just fun because you can just kind of like, you see how I have this on the corner. So you can just kind of like go around and everybody has its little, you know, either a chopstick or, or, you know, a, a fork, a chopsticks or a fork. And, you know, you can put your own little thing on there. It's okay. It's just a fun piece. I have to admit. So it's very nice. <laughs> And I also have a question about the succulent plants. Um, I understand that we probably need more drought tolerance plants. Yeah. And I know succulent was one of them. If people have a different approach to what kind of plants they would like to acquire when they decide their gardens. So, so what I what I do is um okay, let me say that. Not all clients want to have this very arid look which I totally understand. And so when when we started to say trout tolerant about 15 years ago, most people went like, oh, God, we don't want that. That's cactus. Isn't that as pretty? And I was like, no, it's not really cactus. What you guys just saw now, that is a trout tolerant landscape. And you won't believe it, but it indeed is. And it looks very lovely. It has grasses. It has succulent. It has grass-like plants that were like these formiums out of, of New Zealand. Um, it's a good mix of um, plants from South Africa, the Mediterranean, um, New Zealand, um, and naturally our own natives. So, so as you see, all these areas have the same requirements in terms of, you know, not a lot of, of water during the during the summer and then a lot of water. Well, <laughs> not so much for us anymore. Usually a lot of water in the winter. So so but these are all plants that are used to our situation here. And you can combine them very beneficially. When we did that purely um that we wanted to only have um California native plants, then I had these very disappointed situations where people would go, but but we want to have flowers year round. And it's not really how our flowers work, right? If it's so, I educated my clients immediately because that, that would be the consequence would be that we would have a fabulous garden, say, you know, March to beginning of June. And then it dries, you know, it's very dry. So when, when the big 4th of July party comes, not that much blooming anymore. So, so, Hence that mixing in of, of, you know, 
the stuff that blooms in winter, the stuff that blooms in summer, you know, it's like, yeah, we could maybe consider a couple plants that are still there for that 4th of July plant, uh, for that 4th of July party. And so then we start mixing them in. So they're not purely native, but they are very used to our climate zone. So they're all very trout tolerant. So this entire garden you've just seen, which was very colorful for people who see it, it was a very colorful garden. That was all trout tolerant. Um, the succulents were just an especially lucky grab, to be honest, because it's going to take them usually about four or five years to get this size. So that I lucked out and I found out about this garden that where the house was going into construction. We just were so happy with that because it makes this entire garden look established right away. One more thing, Daphne, about this. Um, the last time we had a trout, we did let a lot of our trees die because, you know, our state government said safe water. There was no discrimination. So we saved water and a lot of our trees that need water, like redwoods, did actually die. This time, thanks heaven, we worked really hard on that. We now know in the state of California. So it's not just safe water, it's safe water and save your trees. So you get to keep watering your trees, even if it gets really, really, well, you know, if we have to ask for drinking water, then, you know, the trees will have to not be watered. But as long as that is not the case, we are all encouraged to keep watering our trees. And that makes me very happy. So that's, that's fabulous. Um, you know, not all trees are redwoods, thanks heaven. So they, a lot of our trees are quite used to the situation here and are, you know, more in the oak type of tree, which, which can really wait with the main watering until winter. And so, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get lucky and get all our trees through. But it's a, it's a topic that is very close to my heart to save the trees. Since you mentioned about trees, do people require any deciduous trees to be in their gardens so they have a different colors throughout the fall and winters? Yes, yes, we, we get that. And oh yeah, thank you for that for that question. So um yes, people have very distinct wishes. And um it's often people like me that come from a colder climate that go like, oh, wouldn't fall color be nice? And I was like, yeah, we do have fall color. You know, it's called poison ivy. They don't like that joke, but that's my <laughs> usual joke. Fabulous fall color. But nobody wants it. They're so ha Anyway, yes, there are a couple others that that have really, you know, there's one, there is one pair, it's the aristocrat pair that has fabulous, fabulous color. And it's, it, you know, it's a, maybe not a super trout tolerant tree, but an okay tree. Um, pistache, beautiful color. Liquid amber, beautiful color. I'm just not a friend of the liquid amber balls that fall down because I like Devil balls. Yeah, these little, these fruit balls that fall down, they're not so great for people with high heels. So I'm, I'm one of those. So. I'll try to avoid those, but you know, if people have a, you know, a bigger area where we can plant them in the back, they do give very nice, very nice color. What I wanted to say was, there is a way to get my clients what they want. So they come from an area where they have, you know, Japanese maples or something like that, right? And the Japanese maple likes its water. 
when they get old, really old, they're not very picky anymore, but, you know, they need to get really, really old and they still would prefer water and not be completely dry, right? So a tree like a Japanese maple can still be used because we're going to have very small areas that we're watering heavily. So a lot of my planning has to do with um, grouping plants into into areas so that they can be watered together. So what I do often is before I do an irrigation plan or before I do a planting plan even, I just decide that, you know, I know roughly which trees need to go in. I place the trees. I have the, the client sign off on tree placement because that's often the most important piece. And then I group other plants with similar needs around it. Now, if the client would like to have, say, two maples, in certain areas that are not close to each other. Those areas around the maple, and I will plan for the full size of the maple, they get designed as the only medium to high water zone in that garden. And then we will use plants that like medium to high water underneath there. The rest of the garden, very thoughtfully, will be kept as either low water or very low water to offset this again. Um, we have we have a state ordinance for a long time now that actually requires us to do this for new gardens or new buildings. And um, I find it immensely helpful, you know, to calculate out how much water we really will be using and planning accordingly, because it gives you a kind of a nice tool to not be a water hog. And so if you if you must have your maple or your two maples, I can do it without being environmentally, you know, unconscious. We can do it in a sustainable way so that, you know, you get what you need in small doses. The rest of the stuff is going to be adapted to the climate. Do you have any opinion about natural turf versus to artificial turf, which is yes, getting I- very popular lately? Yes, I do. <laughs> Naturally, I have an opinion. Um, It's a lot of landfill because, you know, it doesn't hold forever. And it's like it's installed. The artificial turf is installed as if you install a concrete patio, meaning there's going to be a good layer of base rock underneath. Then there is uh, a sand underneath. Then there is filler material that goes into the into the plastic. It is plastic. Let's just say there's a lot of landfill when this comes out again. I don't know if you've seen it, but it takes the weeds that fly in from the top about two to three years to have weeds again in that, in that, um, you know, in the artificial grass. So most people don't keep it for much longer than seven to 10 years, it seems. A lot of rotation. So, um, environmentally, not that taken. However, and now I have to admit, however, there are situations where this makes a lot of sense and the situations are when there are slivers where they really want to see green and I know they really will not be able to keep this up because it's either super dark or you know whatever but it's like there will not be a green grass situation ever because it will you know you put it in and dice and, and you redo it every two years then I would say yes. 
let's do it. Um, it. Having it in full sun is usually really hard on the feet because it gets so hot. So it's not very comfortable to run on. Um, but, you know, if, it, if it's the right situation and if it's a very small amount of this, I find that actually useful. So that is my, my takeaway. Um, in general, I advise if you do not want to have lawn, we have beautiful, you know, alternatives. One is called Kurapia. Go and Google that one. Kurapia. One is called Daimondia. That's a bit more gray. The Kurapia looks nearly like grass. Um, and then we have any, any time, like the woolly time that fills in very nicely. I, I walked around with clients yesterday to look at lawn alternatives. And she took her, her took her shoes off and she walked over that time lawn. That's cute. That's so cool. And actually, you know, I'm lucky because it's June. So that is a lawn that is currently purple because that's when time moves. So it's a purple lawn. It's super soft. God, it's not always super soft, but yesterday's was super soft. So I was like, great. Um, they love it. They're going to use it. So I'm very happy. Um, if it's if it's super shady, hard to get the same effect. But you know, the three that I just called out, um, they actually will hold out to some foot traffic. If you have a big dog that needs to run on it, not so much. So then then we will go back to a very drought tolerant sod. But so that's that's a lot of my discussions. Is like you know what kind of grass and then. I don't know if you have that, but I have that in half my projects. Bermuda grass is overrunning everything else. And sometimes you just give up. You can fight it or you can give up. And sometimes we just give up and we let the Bermuda grass be where it is. And we put on top something that is called a modified Bermuda grass. And then the two of them can battle this out. The modified one is... Um, Let's just say it's not so much on steroids. It's it's a little bit, you know, softer in its approach. But it will actually hold out against the other one. And and you know, it, you still have Bermuda grass, you gotta like it, but you know, it will still be yellow in, in winter. But heck, you know, at least you don't fight with your Bermuda grass. I'm not a big fan of fighting against nature because it makes my clients unhappy as it would make me unhappy. So if I can do something that goes with nature, we'll, we'll go for the whiskey part. So in a big picture, what would normally involve in the garden design? Good question. Um, it actually kind of divides up very neatly into, you know, three portions. Um, the first portion is collecting data. Collecting data means also, you know, understanding my client. So, you know, if I do a garden for somebody, I spend a lot of time with them. It's not just that the garden gets measured, um, sun and shade gets observed. Um, you know, we're, we're going to the building department, finding out what we can do, what the setbacks are. I was actually more the planning department, what the setbacks are. We're talking to public works to find out if you have any easements from PG&E that we don't know about. Um, so, so we get all that data, but the main thing is to spend time with the clients. Once, once the clients have, um, you know, 
opened up to me, I can help them better. And and they get help from me to open up. So they get homework. So they get to go and find fabulous pictures on house or on Pinterest or on any other website or cut out, you know, out of magazines. Totally fine. Whatever they want to do. The main thing is to not restrict themselves. So they say, but we don't want to do a pool, but we like all these pool pictures. And I said, but maybe you want to show me what you like because you know, while we're not doing a pool, I still get the feeling of what you like. Oh yeah, okay. So then they, you know, so they get help, they get they get instructions, they get homework, and then we look at that, and we do spend a lot of time together. So we go and see other gardens. We just talk about, you know, what their goals are. I'm mainly oriented on their functional goals for, you know, for the most part because that they can actually express. The the aesthetic goals I can usually pick up from what they collected for their homework and how their house is, is set up. Um, and then that that usually works just fine. So they don't need to define I want to have X, Y, Z style. You know, it's like that. I, I remember that at the beginning, you know, I tried to make people answer this question, would you like a Mediterranean style? And they go like, what does that even mean? And I was like, good question. What does it even mean, right? It could mean something totally different for different people. So not doing this anymore. I just want to make sure you get functionally what you need, meaning if you need to have a bocce court, you will have a bocce court. If you need to have an area to meditate outside, you'll have an area to meditate outside. So I will simply ask for that and the rest I'm taking from what I see. And after that, when the data is collected, we're going into what we call the conceptual design, the conceptual design. And I'm going to share my screen one more time to show you how this looks like. So what I want you to see here for the conceptual design, we're using a 3D model so that you can actually see what you get. And you see here, this is the model of what we have seen before. Let me switch off the existing trees because they're actually a little bit in my way here. So you see this kind of scary situation here with the, with the deck. And you see how this all panned out very, very nicely. I'm going to move this a little bit more. This is a fun toy. It's a really fun toy for my clients because they get to see what they, you know, what they're going to build. And we're playing with that 3D model until they have what they like. And I can stop sharing now, but um, what you saw is like something they can actually touch and play and look look out from the inside. You know, how would this look out? How does this look when I look out from the kitchen? Well, easy. You know, you go inside and you look out. Um, is that going to be lined up with that? Yeah, that's going to be lined up with that. Or, you know. Can we add something? Yeah, sure, we can add something. How would it look like if this would have been a pergola? Oh, no problem. We model a pergola. So that is something that gives them as much fun as me. I have to admit, I do like it too. It's just fun. You know, it's fun to, okay, you know, I played with Lego as a child. I still love it. So it's like, for me, this is a bit like playing with Lego when I do this 3D model. It's lovely. You just see what you get. And so that is the most exciting part um, in that conceptual design phase. Once we nail ourselves down to a direction, 
then we do something that's even more fun. We go and visit other gardens, which is extremely fun because then you see the stuff in real life and they go, oh, that's how big that is. It's always nice when you get this, oh, right, this is how big this is. And oh, that's what you said about this hard seed. Oh, and that's why you think we shouldn't. And yes, you know, then I can show the spots under concrete when somebody has concrete around the barbecue because you know, stuff falls off the barbecue and, and concrete soaks up the oil. And then I can show that this is what you get if you use concrete around the barbecue versus how about we use porcelain tile here because then you can drop it and wipe it. Ah, okay, that makes sense. But it's so nice to see it in real life. So I do spend a lot of time during that phase with my clients. Once they feel comfortable that they have picked out what they want, I go into creating the documents for the contractor. There is still, you know, the question here and there for the clients. They need to still sign off the planting plan. They need to still sign off what lighting they want, this kind of stuff. But um, those are more details. Then. And then the last phase is really, you know, where we go out, talk to contractors that, that I know well. Because, you know, I like, I like certain contractors better than others. And those are the ones I've worked with for many, many years. So we talk to those. Um, we get a bit for the clients. And then during installation, when there is a question, I'll be there. Is there a question from the contractor or the client? I'll be there. Um, and then there are phases where I really tell them, please call me when you do X, Y, Z, right? Or, you know, when you, when you run into problems getting your plans, because when I write that planting plan, that might be months before we actually plant. So by the time that, you know, they get around, nurseries have maybe just stocked for winter, which means poinsettias, and we need to substitute with something they have available with. So I am involved throughout the entire process. If there is a misunderstanding, between the contractor and the client, I get pulled in. Um, I'm going to be there. I'm I'm a hand holder for my clients, and they like it. And that's that's really what this comes down to. So, do you design around the existing trees, plants, or structures? Um, if I can rescue a tree and it's healthy, I will rescue a tree. Um, if it's really absolutely not possible, when, for example, somebody wants to have an ADU and we get to take the tree out by, you know, signed off by the, by the arborist and the planning department, we will take it out. But usually we try to avoid that. We try to work around it. Um, there is nothing better than an established tree to make a landscape look immediately good. Um, I have moved stuff all the way around. My own office is a fabulous example for that. I, I'm sitting between two um, massive trees that are that are heritage trees. And boy, that building got, it, it got placed and the foundation got placed somewhere else and it's cantilevering over. So nothing touches the root. And we had those holes hand duck. I mean, we went through a lot of effort to not hurt a tree. And it looks beautiful. It fits so nicely into it. So, um, yeah, I, I do a lot of things that, that keep trees alive. Yes, I'm very, I'm very happy with keeping trees alive. Um, if you want to, I can show you 
a couple of the bigger structures that, that you know, replace. And then they get usually often get built simply by, um, you know, by a company that doesn't do landscape, but they do. It's a general contractor usually that builds this kind of stuff. All right. Um, then we will take a quick look at a couple of the bigger things that we have done here. And you have seen this one already. Here is another one. This is one of these structures we replaced. This was a outdoor kitchen. As you can see, that is a fairly substantial piece here. It actually has a space for a telescope, which was really fun. Telescope has its own little home here. And um, we have, I mean, we've separated hardscape from the kitchen and hardscape for the telescope so that we don't have any vibrations. So there was a lot of work. The, the roof opens on top. Um, this looks really like an indoor room, but um, it is an outdoor room. And everything you ever wanted in a kitchen, including a pizza oven, is in here. And it's actually immense fun. Fridge, ice maker, everything you could just imagine is in there. Um, another one is... This is an extension of the house where we put an entire kitchen in. Oh, you see this one again, that evil grill. Um, in this case, we added a dishwasher and real hot water. So you can make tea outside. It's actually cooking hot, boiling hot water. A fire pit that is actually custom made because we had a competition going between this client and his friend. The friend had a 300,000 BTU fire pit, and so we made sure that he had a 3,300,000 BTU fire pit. I know that's funny. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun to do, I admit it. <laughs> Is hardscape important for outdoor living? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. One of the most important things to, to decide on. Um, as I just pointed out, if you would end up putting a, a concrete, um, slab around your barbecue and you would drop something, you would have stains, right? Because fat stains will show on concrete. Now, what we have, for example, here on this, on this surface here, those are porcelain tiles. They come from Italy. They're extra thick. So you can actually put them just right on sand, on a sand bed. In this case, we put it extra on, on a existing slab underneath, which was perfect. And then we mortared it in, and it is like an outdoor living room, pretty much. Um, it is so nice to walk out onto. And whatever you're dropping onto it, you can hose it off because it is porcelain. It's like your, it's like your plates you're eating from. Very impervious. There is no acid. There is no fat. There is nothing. There's no stain that can actually get to it. So one of my favorite things to do around a barbecue and also actually a sitting area because you will not believe how many red wine stains will be on your concrete if you put concrete down there. Great, really, really fabulous material. The other fabulous material here is and now you're laughing because I'm not a big fan of the faux art, you know, the artificial grass, but I am a big fan of the faux artificial wood. Um, this is an engineered wood and it is fabulous in its upkeep because this one can be hosed off. It doesn't need to be refinished. In contrast, this is real back with wood. It needs to be refinished every two years to look good. This one will hold 
probably 12 to 15 years before it gets kind of anxiety. Um, you could argue that, you know, after that time you will take it out or you really get it washed, right? But, um, you know, it, it holds out for a very long time. I have these decks around my office holding out fabulously. One of the most important decisions. What are the popular patio furniture and outdoor fireplace in color? Well, I like color. <laughs> I think you have figured this one out. I have, I have actually one example where I got a little bit um, muted for once. But um, in general, you know, I also attract clients that like color. So, you know, no, no surprise there, right? Um, I often go all out with furniture. You know, it's like it's like very colorful and very, you know, fun to sit in. Um, this one is is a mix of teal and blue and yellow. I mean, you know, can't go much further out than that one, I guess. Well, you can, but you know, just want to say um, this one here. That is a different one that has a lot of teal with an apple green. Now, this was a client that had actually painted their house in this color. That was not my doing. So I'm, I'm taking no responsibility for that one. But it was kind of a challenge to, mix, to, to match this one. My own office, as you see, goes also in a very colorful garden. My office is a studio in the backyard. And this is what my office outdoor meeting room looks like. Admittedly, lots of color. So, you know, huge neutral umbrella over it, but the rest is lots of color. Um, fun stuff, you know, like, like fun chairs outside. I do have a fire pit wherever you let me put a fire pit. I also have heaters. Some are fixed installed. Some are movable like this one. Personally, I found that so charming because it reminded me of, of a, you know, a little robot that I always wanted to have. So, I got that one. It's just fabulous. And, you know, it's warm. It's perfectly warm outside. I can sit everywhere I ever want to. Loads of fun to be outside and warm and try. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, having very comfortable furniture and having a ton of warmth outside. How long is the process in Norway take a garden transformation? And what areas you service in? All good questions. So um, the areas I'm servicing to answer that upfront is um, preferably, you know, around where I live, meaning um, Mountain View, Palo Alto, Los Altos, Los Altos Hills. Those are my absolute favorites because I can walk, bike, or run, or you know, sometimes even with the car there. But it, it's perfect because I'm so close. Love that naturally. Um, I do go down to Saratoga. I do go up to San, um, San Carlos. I go into Portola Valley. And that's a pretty much my, that's my, um, circle of, of activity. And then, um, project sizes, um, depending really on how long, how much you do, it could take for design anything between three months and nine months. I've seen that before. And then for installation, it could take anywhere between three months and, you know, a year and a half. So, you know, in, in the year and a half, it's not that they're permanently building something. It's often that we have waiting times in between because something else needs to happen. Like 
you know, you, you can go so far and then the pool needs to go in, or you can go so far and then, you know, the house needs to be finished. So, you know, it, it can pull itself out over time. But great question. Thank you. Thank you, Astrid. Thank you for a very informative interview with me. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with me. <laughs>